live stream audience we're passing out the little handout that might help some might help many for the second sermon I start with a question what drives and sustains you it's at the top of your handout what drives and sustains you you do what you do by the variety and proportion of influences and inputs that motivate your life. The better you rank and select those influences for yourself, the better and stronger a person you'll be in the sight of God and men. You can measure yourself and you can measure others by how high you or they live in this hierarchy to please God. And I'll be introducing seven thoughts to you, very simply considered today in the time that we have, as influences that can change, that should affect your life. The influences will overlap a little bit, and don't worry about that. It's just to make you think about seven different ways of living. Each of these influences in men's lives could be greatly expanded, but I've chosen to simplify this and make it very simple instead of making it exhaustive, as I'm often tempted to do. In the first line... The first influence that influences people is the first and worst influence in life, but it's easily followed by many, and it's conformity. Conformity, meaning they are chameleons. They have no character, and they have really nothing. They just adapt to what's going on around them. They follow peer pressure. And so it's terrible. They just do, they just do what everyone's doing around them. They do what they're used to, and so they conform to others. It happens when they're, they're around sinners. The sinners sin, they sin along with them. It happens to these weak people whenever they become church members. When they're at church, they act like a church member because they're just conforming to whatever group they're with. It can be out there with sinners. It can be in here with us. So if they say some of the things or they smile or they participate a little bit, it's conformity. It's the weakest measure of a man's life. It's a terrible influence. It's what we commonly call peer pressure. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 25, which is a warning verse, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. If you worry about what men think, if you're trying to just be get along with everyone, then you're going to make terrible choices. And so it's Proverbs 29, 25, the warning for conformity. But now in Romans 12, we have a great text. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and it's a helpful text, if you're listening to me. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed. So this is a helpful verse for us. And be not conformed to the world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God has warned us not to conform to the world, not to follow them, not to get along with them, not to befriend them. If we, we befriend the world, we're the enemies of God. But conformity drives so many people. They want to be accepted. They want to fit in. And so they do it outside with the world between Sundays, and they do it with us on Sunday. And it's the weakest measure of a man and, or woman. So step up to higher ground. 
And every step here from one through seven is going to be higher ground. That's the weak one we begin with. I want you to know as a Christian, God has planned that you would be conformed to the image of his son. And he is bringing around his work from eternity past to eternity future to conform you perfectly to his son. And that's the only conformity that we want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The next one is called consequences. And I'm going to go ahead and give them to you rather than make you try to figure them out from my speech. This is the second worst influence because it merely reacts to rewards or punishment. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 23 and verses 1 through 3, that if you're a man given to appetites, you ought to put a knife to your throat when you're out with certain kinds of people wanting to wine and dine you. Because there's consequences. And I want you to be thinking about now people make choices about consequences. So in their minds, when they get caught in a sin, they don't repent of the sin because the thing that they're really bothered about is that they got caught. And it's dealt with in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. And so it is a warning text to us. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Worldly people get sorrowful about sin. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I did that. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But really, all it means is I got caught, and I'm sorry I got caught, and I don't want to bear the consequences of it. And so their lives are driven by consequences. What will my reward be if I go this direction? And that reward could be legitimate or it could be evil. What will my punishment be if I go in this direction? And when I get caught, what should I do to minimize punishment and maximize reward? Look at Hebrews chapter Hebrews 11, 24 through 26 is, the, is a helpful text. Listen to these wonderful words about Moses. Moses, look what he did with consequences. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Hello? The man was born in poverty, but he could be Pharaoh's daughter. He could be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could be Pharaoh's grandson. He didn't want that consequence. He didn't want that result. He didn't want that reward. Choosing rather... Hebrews 11.25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Can I give you five R's from one verse? He considered the reproach of Christ better than the riches of the treasures of Egypt because he had respect to the recompense of a reward that's not visible to the eyes or immediately perceived. It's one that you believe by faith. So look what he did with circumstances. He flushed the reward of being great in Egypt to accept the reproach of being Christ because it's all about him. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Consequences. God planned the worst consequences for those that reject his son, disregard his son, make light of his son, and make light of his son's gospel. 1 Corinthians 16, would say, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Let him be anathema maranatha. In 2 Thessalonians, the Bible would say, the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, consequences. We don't care what this world throws at us. Jesus said, don't be, don't be worried about those that can kill the body. Worry more about him that can kill both body and soul in hell. And so it's a poor decision maker. It's, it's going to lead you into error if you worry about the rewards and punishments of this life. Think about the rewards and punishments that God has in store for you. And Moses could see that, though Moses knew less than we know. And he made the right choice. The martyrs made the right choice. They didn't deny Jesus Christ when they were asked, if you'll deny Christ, we'll let you go. No. They didn't care about that. So consequences. And you know, there's, let me say that there's a great deal that could be said on every one of these, and I have reduced it. I just want you thinking about the concepts and the verses in the Bible. There's many more verses in the Bible for each of these. Some people make their decisions by wanting to get along and fit in with everyone else. That's the weakest kind of a man that there's ever been. Second, they make the decisions by consequences. What is this going to cost me? What can I get out of this? And as soon as you start thinking about that, you'll become a traitor for a, for a loaf of bread because you're, just, you're, you're showing that all that matters to you is, is getting something out of it or you're afraid of punishment. And so you'll adjust your conduct that way. We want higher motivations than those two. So let's just flush two so far. Flush them. The, th the third one is one that we covered this morning a little tiny bit called conscience. This influence we rank third. We bring it up to third. At least it's from God. But it's, it's never complete. It always needs to be taught more. It's ignorant. Every man's conscience is different. Some men will have conscience of meat offered to an idol, and some men won't, wouldn't care. You know, we didn't live in that world, so maybe it's hard for us to say, I don't think I'd care because I know who made everything. And I hope that we could just chow down on steak, even if it was at a block party in our subdivision, after someone offered an ox to Zeus, just like the Bible teaches. If you're disposed to go, go, and let your family eat free. Conscience. This influence we'll put third because it is from God. It's called the candle of the Lord in Proverbs 20 and verse 27. It's the candle of the Lord, but it's just a start. All men have it, even reprobates. Do you remember when Jesus had the woman taken in adultery in that crowd before him and the consciences began biting the oldest to the youngest and they just left that situation, but they didn't repent? They just were accusing or else excusing themselves. They'd just been caught. So they felt guilty because they were caught. So we appreciate our consciences, and we want to develop our consciences. And the way you develop your conscience is to obey your conscience. And you teach your conscience the Word of God. But that's not my point. Many do not have a real conscience due to searing it. And so the warning verse is 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, speaking of the Roman Catholic priesthood. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. 
Every time you disobey your conscience, it's weaker. If you keep disobeying your conscience, you'll sear it like you put an iron on it. You'll cauterize like a wound. Do you know, you can stop the bleeding on your arm. Just get your mother to heat up the iron and press the iron on it. It'll stop the bleeding. It'll cauterize that thing. Seared with a hot iron is what the Bible says. I'm just trying to make it applicable for something that you've seen before and thought about before. So not everyone has an active conscience. Some people's consciences are seared, and you've met them. They can do, they, anybody that can conform to others and try to fit in here and fit in there, even though these two places are opposite, they don't have much of a conscience because a conscience won't let them do that. A conscience says, I've got to stand up for what's right. I can't fit in everywhere because these are opposite places and opposite people that I'm around. Conscience. Many do not have a real conscience because they've seared it. Don't sear your conscience. How do you sear it? You disobey it. You keep saying, I'm going to do this anyway, even though you've got that little voice inside accusing you. Did you see in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16 that I read that a conscience can accuse you or else excuse you? It excuses you when you're doing what's right. It accuses you when you're doing what's wrong. But if you do something wrong against your own conscience, it's sin before God. Do you remember that from preaching on liberty? Because your conscience makes it a sin. And so when you go against it, then it just gets quieter and quieter until you really don't have one. And so here you are, you're trapped at the bottom of this hierarchy of influences that can make you great in the sight of God and men. Do you know what Apostle Paul could say when he was on trial? Do you know what he could write, Timothy? I have obeyed God with a pure conscience from my birth until now. Twice on trial for his life and writing a personal letter to Timothy. That is quite a statement. Look at Acts 24 for another statement by Paul about his conscience, and it'll be the helpful verse. Did you know that you could take this home, fathers, and you've got seven days of devotions laid out for you, and your family could find other verses that are warning and other verses that are helpful about these things? Acts chapter 24. Here's, what, here's Paul testifying about himself, and he says, Herein do I exercise myself. 24.16. For all of those of you, or me, or both of us, that might believe in some exercise, here's an exercise for us. Herein do I exercise myself. So Paul believed in exercise. To have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. I never go against my conscience toward God. I never go against my conscience toward men. And that would lead you to growing in favor with God and men. Because if you've developed your conscience and taught it some of the word of God and you've obeyed it so it's pretty strong and it speaks pretty plainly to you, look what it can do for you. And so I exercise myself to always, I obey that conscience. When my conscience tells me that God is not going to be happy with this, I don't do it. When my conscience says, you know, if you do that, other people are going to be offended. Other people are going to be weakened by it. You're going to discourage others. Then I don't do it. And so the, that the apostle Paul gives us a helpful verse about the conscience. You can, you can play games with your conscience sometimes, little games. Is that taught in the Bible? 
1 Corinthians 10, ask no question for conscience sake. Keep your conscience ignorant. Ask no question. So you're in the meat market and the butcher is standing behind the counter and he's got this big slab and he's just cut you a filet. But he hasn't filleted it. I mean, it's called a the tenderloin. Oh, thank you. The tenderloin. And so he's just cut you one. And there's two options you have. Sir, was that offered to an idol? Or, thank you. That looks great. I can't wait to get home and grill it. Is that in the Bible? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And when you go to that block party, and they've got that ox turning on the spit, you have two options. Friend, this is really great to bring my, my family, all nine children, with me to this ox roast. Did you, did you offer this to one of the idols of the city? Or, thank you, sir. We are going to enjoy this. They are going to enjoy this. Would you say together, thank you, to the man throwing that event? But the Bible allows us, it says, don't ask any question for conscience sake. I just want to teach you a little bit about the conscience while we're here at the conscience. The conscience is better than conforming. You can tell that easily. The conscience is better than making decisions by reward and punishment. You can tell that. The conscience is a candle of the Lord, Proverbs 20, 27, that God's put inside of you that whispers or speaks up and says, God does not want you to do that. Other men would be offended if they knew about that. And so we make our choices that way, and you can exercise yourself to have a great conscience. And if you want to be like Paul, then we got to exercise the way Paul exercised. The best conscience, the best conscience is a conscience that is taught the grace of God through Jesus Christ. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, Old Testament religion, how much more shall the blood of Christ, Hebrews 9, 15, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's knowing about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's knowing about Christ so that baptism becomes the answer of a good conscience toward God. Where does that good conscience come from? It comes from learning about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we're getting closer, aren't we now? Can you tell that we're getting closer to the top? Because it's all about Him. If you're smart, you could fill in the top, fill in number seven now, but don't do it. We're at number, we're at number three, conscience. And look at what the gospel can do for a conscience. How much more shall the blood of Christ purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Number four is character. Number four is character. This influence is one of those noble words that vary considerably by a person's upbringing and their training, their teaching, and their choices later in life. Character by itself doesn't mean very much because the wicked have character. I read to you this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, that's a description of character. Their character is blind, lascivious, and giving themselves over to filthiness with all greediness. Those are traits of character. Because don't be careful with the word character. You're going to get yourself in trouble since it's not a Bible word. It's a man-made word. There's good character, there's bad character, and there's... I don't even know if he has any character. 
You know, because he never does anything consistently. He doesn't do the same thing twice. He can't do the same thing for two weeks in a row. And that's a lack of character of any kind. So be careful with the word character. But what we mean by character is the traits that define a person. You know, if a man is hardworking every day, he's a diligent man. So that's a character trait. If he's lazy, slothful, then we know that's a character trait as well. Some men are generous. Some men are stingy. And so they're character traits. It's the code of conduct trained in a person or chosen later. When the Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it, that means you're training his character because you're training his response that's going to come later when you're not around. You know, and the horrible thing for a parent, well, hopefully they've done their job. When they send that kid off to school, the kid goes off to school and he's out at recess and he's around all these other little pagans running around, what's going to happen? Has he been trained well so that he doesn't like those other little pagans and he wants to do what's right or not? We're talking about character. But what we want is a warning verse. And so we have a warning verse in Psalm 36, 1 through 4. Psalm 36, 1 through 4. Let me read it to you. The transgression of the wicked. When we watch a wicked person sin, the transgression of the wicked saith within my heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. So it reveals his character. His character is, he doesn't fear God. For he flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful, not until he gets caught. Remember? Conformity and consequences. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He fantasizes about sin. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Those are four bad verses, and that's describing bad character, and we don't want any one of them. So it's a warning verse about character, Psalm 36, 1 through 4. Then we jump back 35 chapters to chapter 1, and we have this. Psalm 1, 1 through 2 are the helpful verses. Blessed. Oh, we want blessing. We want to be hid in the day of his anger. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. That is good character. And that's a character you can choose. And hopefully we teach our children to love the word of God and trust the word of God, and the word of God is true and nothing else is true. And so character comes through. The best character from child training or later is to be like Christ. Be ye followers of me, Paul said, as I follow Christ. Everything goes back to Christ. It's all about him. That's number four. What drives and sustains you? Conformity to fit into this church, to fit into those that you work with. Consequences. I make my choices of what I'm going to get out of it and preserve myself from pain and trouble. Conscience. How strong is your conscience? Is it like Paul's or is it like most men? Pretty worthless. Or is it good character? Because look at the different kinds of character. What kind of built-in character do you have? Which is the code of responses to, input, to impulses and to threats that you get in life. That's four. I don't like the first page. Can we get a little higher? Okay. Commitment. 
commitment is number five. Oh, Lord, help me right now. I hope that everyone here will flush the first four and not worry about them. They're too vague. They're too nebulous. They're too dangerous. They're too risky. They're too easily corrupted. These are not. Commitment. This influence is the most conscious one yet, though it may rely on a past commitment. It's your commitment. When you get a job, employment motivates you by promised rewards and denies you sharing trade secrets because you commit, I am yours. You commit to them. They tell you we're going to be able to pay you this now, and over the next couple of years we're going to have performance reviews, and this could happen to you. And so you commit to that reward. And they tell you, you know, you've got to sign this non-disclosure agreement because while you're working for us, you can't tell competitors. Um, and it's going to last for five years from the state of your employment. And so you make a commitment. I'm going to take that job. And so you're committed. You're committed to that reward. You're committed to that cost. That's one example. Marriage is a commitment. You two made a commitment a month ago. Marriages, many promises before and during the wedding drive those true to their word. You made some promises to her in front of all of us. You better treat her well. You made some promises to him in front of all of us, and I hope you'll treat him well. That's a commitment. You made a commitment. And God calls it the covenant of marriage. So we let you get married, and you two drove off together. We'd never seen you drive off quite like that before. And you didn't even report back in for weeks because you made a commitment. And so I'm, just, I'm giving you examples of the commitment. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 28, the Apostle Paul is on trial for his life, and he is a gifted, eloquent orator and rhetorician. And he is presenting things the best that they can possibly pre be presented. And Agrippa reaches a place where Paul says, O King Agrippa, surely thou art persuaded to be a Christian. And he said, almost, thou hast persuaded me to be a Christian. That's not making a commitment. That's the warning verse, Acts 26 and verse 28, that goes in the warning verse line for commitment. This is just a little side note for those of you that like history a little bit. The Bible wants you to know that when Agrippa II showed up, Herod Agrippa II, the grandson of Herod the Great, um, Bernice was with him, and Berenice was his sister, and it was a lifelong incest. And when you get yourself into predicaments like that, and you try to make a commitment, it's going to cost you something. Commitments cost. Do you know what it's cost you, little girl? He's the only one the rest of your life. Do you know what it's cost you, buddy? She's the only one the rest of your life. It's no big cost if you like the one you're with. It's no big cost at all. There's a cost to commitment. Follow me with this cost. Look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and it was briefly mentioned on Wednesday evening. Romans chapter 6, listen to these words. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Yeah. 
Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. If ye then, Colossians chapter 3, if ye then be risen with Christ, set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. It's a commitment. And it's the commitment of baptism. It's our commitment to Christ that, is, that should be a driving motive every day of our lives. Know ye not? How did Romans 6 begin? Because there was so much grace in Romans chapter 5, it begins with, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Well, what's the driving motivating force? Because we got baptized. When we got baptized, we said our allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we got baptized, we said, I'm burying my old man to rise to walk in a new life. When we were baptized, we said, no matter what happens to me, I am willing to be killed for the cause of Christ because Jesus is coming back for even my body. We believed all that and we declared it with baptism. And baptism is a huge, wonderful, glorious commitment that ought to affect us. I like this kind of a commitment. Once upon a time, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and he saw some fishermen and he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They said to their father Zebedee, we're gone. Sorry, dad. Drop their nets and follow Jesus. I want you to know something about those apostles once they were full of the Holy Ghost. They're on trial for their lives. They know that Jesus had been crucified by these same Jewish leadership. They're on trial for their lives, and they are told, they are commanded not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Do you want to hear their answer? And do you want to hear the explanation for their answer? Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We've made a commitment and we've been ordained the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. These words just, I love these words right now. Not whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. Those words are good. But then the explanation, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We cannot. We have no choice in the matter. We've made a commitment. And every one of you in here that has been baptized, you made a commitment that you were going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and every decision point that you make in your life, you should be looking back at that baptism. We cannot but do the right thing. We cannot but do the right thing. Are you with me? That's commitment. It's number five. We haven't reached the top yet, but we're getting there. And you were all baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is a real commitment. I have decided to follow Jesus. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I cannot do that with you. I must do what would be faithful to my baptism. Because that's your commitment. Plus you made a commitment to this church. The next one. What's the five-letter word that David used to tell the nation of Israel 
that they ought to be ashamed of themselves for being so timid. Cause. Is there not a cause? So we make a commitment. There's a day in which our faith in Christ is great enough that for number five, we make a commitment to follow him. And that commitment we should remember. And that commitment we should live faithful to. Do you want these two to live faithful to their commitment? We do. But we make a commitment to Christ. And we want to be faithful to it. And when you take an employment contract, you show up when they want you to, you leave when they want you to, you don't do what they don't want you to, you park where they want you to, you do everything because you've made a commitment. I'm yours. I will serve you. I will be the best employee. I'll be a Christian employee. You may be saying inside. And so we have that commitment. But now we have a cause, and it is higher than that commitment. It's higher. This influence is outside a person. Your commitment is inside you because you make a conscious choice that I'm going to follow Christ. But the cause is outside, and it focuses your life choices and efforts on a higher purpose. The cause. Politicians. What's the cause of a politician? Law and order? Could be one. Socialism? In our country, it's communism. Lots of politicians are, they have a cause. It's communism. How about doctors? They have a cause. I want to improve health. And some of their desires are very noble. They may do it the wrong way in certain cases, but their desires are noble. Teachers. Some teachers, I don't want there to be any literacy in the world. And so they get a cause, and that cause can drive them through lots of years of education and low-paying jobs because they don't care. What makes a policeman go be a policeman for a little bit of money when he's called a pig? And there's pictures of pigs and stuffed pig animals used, and they're defunding the police. What makes them want to be a policeman for a cause? I want people to be, God puts it in them. I want people to be able to sleep at night in their beds and be comfortable and safe and secure and not have to worry about it because I'll take care of them. That's a cause. Baal's prophets had a cause. The religion of Baal. Do you know how serious they were about their cause? They cut themselves and bled all day trying to raise their God, but it didn't do any good. How about the priests and nuns of Rome? Do they have a cause? It's Mother Church to them. It's the Pope. So they make vows of perpetual celibacy and perpetual poverty. They, give, they sell everything. They, they give everything up they have. They have a cause, and they, they follow theirs. We have a cause. A warning verse, and there's so many of these. A warning verse. I could have used a warning verse about family. I could have used a warning verse about all kinds of things, but I've used one for riches. And this is the rich young ruler that came to Jesus Christ, so it's Matthew 19 and verse 24. The warning verse about cause. And again I say unto you, this is Jesus teaching his apostles, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Do you have trouble getting a thread through the eye of a needle at times? Well, how about getting a camel through it? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Because a rich man, this kind of a rich man, wouldn't give up his riches, so what was his cause in life? Making money. Making money. He that will desire to be rich heaps, him, heaps 
incredible sorrows upon himself and destroys his own soul because the love of money is the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. What drove David to be unlike all the Israelites facing Goliath? Because he had a cause. What was his cause? The glory of God. The glory of God. Look at his psalms. Look at his thoughts. Look at his innermost. It's the glory of God. David just wanted God to be glorified. And he wasn't afraid of a lion. He wasn't afraid of a bear. And he certainly wasn't afraid of a nine-foot, nine-inch, uncircumcised cyclops that was threatening his God and his people and blaspheming his God. So he ran to meet him. He didn't need any armor for it either. He had a cause. He did not understand why Eliab, his older brother, wasn't already out there. He did not understand why Jonathan, Saul, or anyone else wasn't out there because he had a cause. You know, your commitment is inside you. Your cause is outside you. The cause is the Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God, the glory of his kingdom, the furtherance of his gospel, and the benefit and profit of his people and his church. The cause. The cause of New Testament gospel religion. It's a cause. And it should drive us. It's outside you. It's bigger than you. It should motivate us. We make our decisions by it. It's a great cause. It's easy to quit a job for that cause. It's easy to leave, it's easy to leave children for that cause. It's easy to lose friends for that cause. Because nothing matters compared to that cause. It's the cause of Almighty God. My Father in heaven, it's the cause of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father loveth the Son, and I love the Son, and so nothing else can compete with that. It's the cause. It's our cause. Do you live by the cause of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you live by the cause of this church? Do you live by the cause of the glory of God? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You say, what's the helpful verse, Pastor? What's the helpful verse? It's Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Matthew 13, 44 through 46 sounds like this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Cause. Okay, who baptized Saul of Tarsus? Ananias. So Paul made a commitment. Was that commitment what drove Paul? It, yes, it drove Paul. But he had two things higher than that driving him. The Apostle Paul said, it would be better for me to depart and to be with Christ than to stay here. Nevertheless, I will stay here for what reason? because I still want to see if I can get a couple more promotions before I leave this world? What, why did Paul want to stay? For the benefit of the Philippians. But I will stay for you. The cause was driving him. He didn't fall back on his baptism. He, felt, he fell back on the cause. God has enabled me. God has gifted me. God has made me an apostle. He's given me an understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. I need to stay here and help you. What are you going to get up for tomorrow morning? Because you have to, that's conformity. Stay in bed. See, honestly, why are you going to get up tomorrow? Let's get up, because whether we eat or drink or stay in bed or get up, let's do it to the glory of God, because it's our cause. And so the helpful verse, 
the greatest cause is the gospel kingdom of Christ. Have you ever heard these words before? Roger, have you ever heard these words before? And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. Abigail, don't be looking at Roger. I'm looking at you. Isn't that the truth? And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. See, my baptism was a commitment inside me, for me, between me and God. But then God gave me something to serve and make great in the, make us great as we can in the world. And without controversy, it is the greatest thing ever. Well, Pastor, how are you going to trump that? Easy. Christ. Amen. Christ is number seven. Thank you for coming with me. I'm sorry that life is mostly work and little play. But it's for the cause. And our cause isn't foolish. It's not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And in comparison to this, those are two equals. They're irrelevant in the course of this world. And they don't affect the kingdom of God. I love John MacArthur for saying that so boldly and plainly. He doesn't care who the next president is because it doesn't touch the kingdom of God. Amen. Our kingdom our kingdom has a king and he's not moved by anyone. There's no politician on earth nor all the politicians put together that can alter anything. Amen. The martyrs were the best Christians that ever lived. They certainly aren't 20th century Christians or 21st century Christians. Christ, this is the best, highest, strongest, and most passionate and personal influence of all. Men have followed Buddha. They followed Muhammad. Even they have follow, even followed Jesse's son David. But Jesus is best of all. Religious, military, or political leaders are but men. They offer you far less than they have or pursue. They will not come for you when you are in serious trouble at the risk of their lives. They may send others. They disappear at death. They cannot help your death. They cannot empower or possess you. Jesus Christ trumps them in every single way possible. I mean, it would take me a sermon series, which I did. He is altogether lovely Amen. to show you that Jesus is better than the best man that you can even imagine by any measurement. The Apostle Paul was a zealot like no other for the last two-thirds of his life for Christ. The helpful verse is 2 Corinthians, the helpful, skip a line, go to helpful, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Jerry was there earlier when he was presenting to us Psalm 32, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, at verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us. This is Christ Jesus himself. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, one man died for me, then we're all dead, and at that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. It's all about him. So the top, the highest motivation, what drives you? What sustains you? Is it conformity? Is it consequences? Is it conscience? Is it what you call character that can't be defined? Except as you got to be very careful with it. Or is it your commitment of baptism? What really, or the cause? I want it to be Christ himself with the cause below him and your commitment below that. And the others, you can just forget about them 
Because if you've got Christ in the right place and the cause in the right place and you've made a commitment to it and you live up to that commitment the way the Bible describes it, you're covered. You don't have to think about the other four. Life becomes simplified. There's so many verses on this particular one. What a change it made in the Apostle Paul. Christ and the love of Christ is the strongest influence and motive that you can ever have. Look at John 15. I'll, I'll read you John 15. These are the, this is the warning verse. John 15, 4 through 6. John 15, 4 through 6. Abide in me and I in you. This is how personal it is. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. It's a personal connection, a personal commitment, personal love, exchange between you and Christ. He goes with you 24-7. He's inside you. No other leader, no other hero, no, no one else can do anything like Christ can do with you, for you, to you. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For, and this is the warning, for without me, ye can do nothing. Make the cause as high as you want. Make your baptismal commitment the greatest baptismal service there ever was. If you're not in the vine, and the vine supporting you, you can't do anything. You can get as disciplined as you want. You can list all the duties that you're supposed to keep. But if you're not motivated by Christ, it will never amount to anything in the sight of God and good men. The Christ and the love of him is the strongest influence and motive. Thrilling martyrs that they got to die. They got the pleasure of dying and subduing earthly temptations. I have written to you a couple of times in the last week from a song called Turning Your Eyes Upon Jesus. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The closer you get to Jesus Christ, everything else disappears. And so the warning verse is John 15, 4 through 6, and the helpful verse is 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, where the Apostle Paul said, The love of Christ constraineth me. The love of Christ will lift your heart and mind higher. It will take your life farther, give you greater joy, peace, and hope, reduce or eliminate addictions and weaknesses. Love him today. You don't need hours of counseling. You don't need hours of therapy. You need Christ. You can make a commitment today that your cause will be Christ. You can make a commitment today that your cause will be Christ. The last three on this list and then follow him today. You change your inputs and priorities to make pursuing him the greatest ambition of your life and he will come to you in affectionate power to embrace you in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. Was that songwriter nuts? Or did that songwriter know the truth? I will arise and go to Jesus. 
What drives you? If you're not driven by number seven, when you meet number seven, he's going to want you to explain why anything else competed with him. I'm going to tell you a story. Some of the best Baptist churches in America came from Wales. Wales is a country west of London, England, mountainous region, the southwest corner of that great island. About 150 years ago, in 1859 to be exact, there was a great revival in Wales. As a result, missionaries came from England and Wales to spread the gospel in India. At the time, 150 years ago in 1859, Northeast India was not divided into the many states as it is today. The region was known as Assam and comprised hundreds of tribes. The tribal communities were quite primitive and aggressive by nature. The tribes were also called headhunters because of a social custom which required the male members of the community to collect as many heads as possible. A man's strength and ability to protect his wife was assessed by the number of heads he had collected. Therefore, a youth of marriageable age would try and collect as many heads as possible and hang them on the walls of his house. The more heads a man had, the more eligible he was considered. Into this hostile and aggressive community came a group of Welsh missionaries spreading the message of Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed. One Welsh missionary succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and two children. This man's faith proved contagious, and villagers began to believe on Jesus Christ as well. Angry, the village chief summoned all the villagers. He then called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or to be executed. Moved by the Holy Spirit, because how else can we explain it? The man instantly composed a song which became famous down through the years. He sang, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Commitment. Cause. Christ. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to shoot the two children. As the two boys lay twitching on the floor, the chief asked, Will you deny your faith? You have lost both your children. Will you lose your wife too? But the man sang these words. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be shot. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Now he asked for the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man sang the final memorable lines. The cross before me, the world behind me. 
no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. And we have heard this before in other martyr accounts. The chief who had ordered the killings was moved by the faith of the man and his family. He wondered, why should this man, his wife and two children, die for a man who lived in a faraway land 2,000 years ago? There must be some supernatural power behind the family, and I too want that supernatural power. In a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, I too belong to Jesus Christ in the ignorance of his faith. When the crowd heard this, their chief say that he was going to follow Jesus, the whole village believed on Jesus Christ. It's a little chorus. This story has been told and retold and written and documented as well as men can document something that took place among a bunch of headhunters for 160 years. We will sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. You sing the verse three times. I have decided to follow Jesus three times. You sing no turning back twice. We're not talking about getting regenerated. We're not talking about being born again. We're not talking about a mourner's bench. We're talking about making a commitment to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what the cost. Though none will join me, still I will follow. Though none will join me, still I will follow. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. Now, if you're not very committed to the cause of Jesus Christ, you probably shouldn't sing. But if you are, Eric's going to lead us, and let's sing it. We're going to go out and face not headhunters. We're going to go out and face soul destroyers. And we have some in us. The world's against us, and the devil's against us but we can make the commitment for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, Eric, for the difficult task. All right, please stand with me. I have decided, it's the first verse, I have decided to follow Jesus. Second verse is, though none go with me, still I will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me is the third verse. Let's sing. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Still I will 
the cross before me. Back.